0: Well, tonight we start a new series. That's always kind of exciting. Just feels like you get it on the very beginning, right? And uh, we're going to be looking at what apparently is a very necessary study. It's a book of the Bible that isn't in every Bible. Um, And that's the book of Galatians. It's not in every Bible by the way people... Teach and behave, and it is pretty evident because they just can't seem to get that message. Uh, the book of Galatians is something that we are we have already referenced a little bit in our study in Acts, as we saw Paul coming to the Jerusalem church. We find myriads of Jews all zealous to keep the law, and we looked at the at the deplorable state that that really establishes. And so we're going to be studying through the book of Galatians, a very necessary study. In fact, just yesterday I got a call to uh, remind me that it's still necessary in this day, in this age. That when we think of the church going liberal, we often think of it as going into error and sin. And that error is usually a denial of the deity of Christ, of the authority of Scripture, and things like that. And that sin that we usually think about is immorality and worldliness. But that is only one part of liberalism in the the church, an error. The other half, the other uh, error, is in the, it might seem like it's, and, and that's probably the most hideous thing about it, is it seems like it's more religious, it seems like it's more godly, and it seems like it's, um, right, um, and it would be much like James saying, "Well, we have myriads of Jews all zealous to keep the law, and so let's not upset the apple cart." And it seems like, well, that should be right because it was right for you know a couple thousand years, so it must be right today. And so we have error, and that error, Paul addresses here as in other places. Um, it also introduces sin. And that sin is very real going on in churches today, that pride, that arrogance, that somehow we can keep a set of rules and therefore um, we and can impose those rules on others and therefore uh, determine who is or is, who is not going to the kingdom of God. And so yesterday I got a phone call from such an individual and... Um, they uh, rep- misrepresent themselves right off the beginning. And his invitation was, well, are you a pastor that preaches the word? And I was like, okay, what's, what's, what's your, what do you want to know? And he says, well, I'll open your Bible to this. And I said, okay. I said, so what do you what?" And he says, well, there's, there, re- there remains a Sabbath rest out of Hebrews. There remains a Sabbath rest. And I said, okay, what do you, I pretty much knew where he was going pretty quick since it was Saturday, and he was calling. And his statement was, well, why are you worshiping on Sunday and not Saturday? And I said, well, this passage. And you start to give what the passage is really talking about, which is a future rest for the nation of Israel, which is what that text is referring to. It horribly had taken out of context and abused. Um, and it says that there remains yet in the future a Sabbath rest. So it obviously doesn't refer to anything the church was doing in the time period when uh, Hebrews was written. Um, that wasn't settling to him. And he says, well, Jesus says if you, when he is asked the question, he says, well, you, you have to keep the law and the prophets. Um, which, of course, correlated really well with this morning's message about the law and the prophets, right? And uh, I said, well, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He says, oh, you're one of the... Well, and, and basically from there on I wasn't allowed to finish the sentence and I was pretty much being yelled at over the phone. And uh, he was there to correct me. Um, that I, we should be worshiping every Saturday. We should be taking the Sunday off. And I asked him, why aren't you in a... Every question I asked him, he didn't answer. Why aren't you in a Seventh-day Adventist church? Why are you calling Baptist churches today when you know we meet on Sunday? You were just picking a fight. Um, and the final question um, was, so you believe this is... Saturday's the day of worship? Yes. I said, so you're worshiping God by... Falsely representing yourself, calling Baptist pastors to start arguments. That's your idea of worshiping on the Sabbath, is to institute arguments and contentions. And um, that pretty much ended the conversation. Um, So it's alive and well. These things are still flying around. The Christian community and the Seventh-day Adventists feed it. And others of that ilk. There are others... um, who are advocating the same thing, and uh, we're going to address those. So I'd like to say, well, that's not the case today, but the fact is is that it is the case. My wife is looking. I'm on B. She's trying to see if I'm on, but I'm on. It is the case, and it is the uh, circumstances we live in that there is still a very, very strong element that wants to impose a law. And that without it, you are decried as a heretic, that I am an evildoer, a Antichrist. So twice in one week, I got hammered for that, um, which is pretty interesting. Uh, And it doesn't happen every week that way. It's not what all my weeks are filled with. Um, But that's probably one of the reasons I don't answer the church line very often. The other reason is because 98% of our phone calls are just people wanting to sell our church stuff, copiers and... When you get them for free on Craigslist, why would you buy one, right? So, anyway, um, and other internet marketing ideas and things like that. So, Galatians is a necessary book, and it is missing out of a lot of people's Bibles. And it's evident by their teaching that they have not studied this book. So, we are going to take our time to go in and th- and so we can have a balanced understanding of the Christian walk and of our salvation, And really, a study of Galatians is a study of salvation. What is our salvation based upon? What is our Christian living striving after? And uh, where are we getting our directives from? And what is the relationship between uh, the church age, this age, and the age of the law? Uh, And what was the law really about? And so we're going to be looking at that. And uh, before you, let's go Lord in prayer. And then we're going to get into really just probably verses 1, 2, and 3 or so. Let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the opportunity to look in your word. And we pray your spirit's direction and care over this time. That it might be uh, beneficial and profitable only because your spirit has directed us into your truth. And Lord, we uh, pray that uh, we might be ready to receive that truth And where it wars against our members, that we might bring our members into subjection to it. And Lord, we do pray that we might be serious students of your word. That we might have a depth of understanding and of maturity. That we are not swept away by other men's arguments. uh, No matter how religious or biblical or self-righteous they may seem. And Lord, we pray that you might uh, give us that kind of wisdom throughout this study but also we might balance it with the parameters of Christian living that you carefully lay out for us and that we want to follow. And Lord, we commit this study to you, and we pray you might work in it mightily. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. All right. Here we go. Verse 1. Paul. Now we know the author, right? That was simple. An apostle. And then we have a parenthetical phrase that ends the verse. And rather than saying that the parenthetical phrase is parenthetical, I want you to understand that it is. Whoa. It is. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm gonna have to. This is why I put this over my shoulder. It is critical. In fact, it is the introduction of his whole argument of his whole book is in this parenthetical phrase that we have before us. By the way, the parentheses were not really in the original, but we add it there. And so we have this phrase: "Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead." And this brings immediately to the attention of the readers what this book is all about. In this one phrase, in this introductory clause, we have really the force. Being thrown in the face of the Galatians. And by the way, the book of Galatians is very much in your face book. This is not a tender, uh, what do I want to say, tactful book in terms of uh, being sensitive to people's uh, feelings. Okay? Not going to be sensitive to people's feelings. It's going to be very abrupt and very uh, accusative. And so right away, Paul's going to slap them in the face with his argument. And that is that you are either one or the other. There is no intermediate ground. There is no um, gray area here. You are either of and through man, doing a gospel that isn't God's, or you are from and through the Father, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, and the Father who raised him. You are one or the other. And Paul very quickly sets up this contrast that he is going to focus in throughout the book. That there is man's way and there is God's way. And you have been listening to these men who are not of God. And he's going to have this contrast between men and God. He's going to have the contrast between um, that which is of the flesh and that which is of the spirit. He's going to have the contrast of of that which is of the slave and that which is of the free man. He's going to have this contrast between that which is the law and that which is of faith. And over and over again, he's going to carefully lay down the distinction between the truth of the gospel and these lies that he says are not the gospel. Let us be very, very clear about that. As we go through this, we are going to be abruptly declaring these are not just our misguided brethren. We are not saying these are just people that are good, believe Christians that just don't have all the truth. That is not how Paul describes them. I don't think he would have said about such individuals, uh, I would that they would be cut off. They'd cut themselves off. I don't think that's something Paul would say about misguided Christians. He is talking about another gospel. Those, and he calls them perverting the gospel. Which means that it's not the gospel. And he is very direct and very clear in stating that. And so right away in verse 1, we are confronted with the theme of the book. I'm an apostle. I'm not an apostle because a man made me that, or by the authority of a man, or from a man who designated me that. Apostolic authority derives from god alone and it's not some rabbi it wasn't one of the original 12 that made me that it wasn't by some declaration of a synod or of a uh board of elders that made me that um god made me that i am an apostle by the working of jesus christ and god the father raised him from the dead living authority and this is the premise of that he is going to press all the way, that you have an opportunity to choose between two camps. One that is built on the empty authority of man, and, and teachers, and rabbis, and um, even to some degree the law, as we're going to look at. Or you can be on this side, where you are depending entirely upon the authority of God and his truth. And the power of the resurrection, uh, and the power of the Father who resurrected Christ, that one to whom we must all answer. And that is the line. And once you begin to put into your mind that that's the line we're talking about, Galatians, there is no middle ground, is there? Is there a muddy gray area where we can say, well, this is kind of good, and, and but it's got some problems to it. I am so tired of fickle Christians wishy-washy in in making a bold line between here's the gospel and here's another gospel that is a lie, that is a perversion. And that is the word that Paul's going to use. It is perversion. Um, That's not a kind word, is it? And yet that's what he declares these people. They are perverting the gospel. And they're perverting it for some motives that that, uh, Paul's going to put his finger on them and call them what they are and the sin that they involve. And so right off the bat, when Paul introduces himself, he isn't going to waste any time. He wants to lay it down right now where his position is, is that I was not made apostle because a bunch of other guys called me an apostle. And by the way, that is how a pope becomes a pope, is it not? All right, they get the little people together, the cardinals together, and they, you know, the smoke's coming out. I wait for the smoke to change so we know that they picked a new pope. Paul says, That's not how I became an apostle. I didn't come to that in that mechanism. Um, and in fact, uh, when you get into the selection even of pastor teachers, um, that's really not uh, something the church selects. Uh, Doesn't Timothy say if you want to desire to be a bishop, you desire a good thing? Okay? Uh, And so then you have a list of qualifications. And so if you don't meet those, you know, don't even investigate it any further, you're done. No reason to pursue it farther. It doesn't matter whether the church rubber stamps it or not. And yes, many, many churches are opening the door for pastors who are not qualified. They are made that way by the will of men not by the will of God. So when Paul here says that it's not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, that I am an apostle, he is claiming divine authority that I have this calling of God, and it is of God and not of man. And so I must do this work. And we saw that this morning in his testimony. I have to be obedient. I'm not going to be disobedient to this heavenly vision, this heavenly calling. Uh, I'm just, I have to do it because I'm a person of faith. I believe and trust in Christ and the power of the resurrection and and I believe in all that. And so when we come to this decision making, uh, we look, well, how do we get to these positions is not by men's authority. Now, do we have, we have ordination councils in our group, um, which is not a selection process. I don't know if many of you realize that. Um, when we ordain pastors and elders, bishops, which we put all in the same category, we are giving a stamp of approval on their doctrine and calling. We are not calling them into the ministry. We are approving them, usually doctrinally is the focus, but also in terms of their calling and practice, that they are fit for the ministry. And so it usually comes well after that they have been in the ministry for some time. And that's the, the church's recognition that, uh, that really serves to help other churches uh, of you know, like faith and practice be able to put some trust into that office. But it's not a calling. It's not a selection process that we, we are approving or disapproving your calling to the ministry. Um, and yes, some men that go through ordination fail the ordination. Does that mean they, sh- they weren't called of God? Well, a lot of times it just means they either got a really rascally ordination council or they weren't well prepared for it. Um, and a lot of that is because we often rush young guys into an ordination um, that isn't uh, necessarily, um, that is kind of considered automatic and they aren't prepared. Um, but Paul talks about the laying on the hands of the eldership and that is a designation of agreement with Uh, And let's go to Acts and look at the calling of Paul and Barnabas. How did it happen? Now we can go back to Paul's conversion, but I really want to talk about the interaction between how do we select these servants of God from among our midst and recognize them and participate with them in ministry. And it is not fundamentally the church that chooses them. What happened uh, there in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 7? Let's go there, if you're not familiar with it. We've studied the book of Acts, so you should be very familiar with it. Um, We've done it in Sunday school. We're doing it in church. Um, So let's go to Acts 13. Uh, Where is that? The church was in Antioch is where we are at. It says there are prophets and teachers gathered together, so they already were involved in ministry in the church, but they were going to be selected for other ministry. It says Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As a minister of the Lord and fasted, verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, Separate to me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So when Paul talks about, I am an apostle, not from men, not through a man, but rather by Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit calling him into ministry. Now, we have the setting him aside in his, as well as in his Road to Damascus incident and the, and the events around Damascus that he was going to be obedient to. But here again, within the context of a local church, five men are in prayer. The Holy Spirit says, Set apart, sanctify these two guys. I have a unique work for them. And they did so. So the Holy Spirit called them, God called them to that work. Then the church comes along in the next verse. It says, uh, in verse 3, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And then verse 4, So them being sent by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia. Now, here's the dilemma. Um, Strong churches that believe very strongly in ecclesiastical authority will come to this Uh, Well, verse 3 is a third-person plural. It's referring in the feminine not to the other three men, but to the whole church of Antioch. And therefore, the action of the church is the action of the Holy Spirit. And this is where the Roman church gets its ideas that whatever act they do is the act of God desires. Um, What they fail to realize is that this is not initiated by the church the church is responsive so the first action is god's god called them then he said separate them then the church in agreement with that calling um, said you go with our blessing and then it says the holy spirit is the one that really sent them And so the church's role here, while vital and I I would contend is important, is not the initial uh, action, nor is it um, the uh, controlling action. Ultimately, the controlling action is of the Holy Spirit. It's God's choice. So when he says, this is the man, that's the man. You can either agree or disagree. And if the church says, "Oh, we don't want to lose them," uh, I don't think we're going to do that. Well, Paul and Barnabas, what are they going to do? They're not going to disobey. <laughs> they're going to go, with or without the church's blessing. But the churches in this condition, in this state, in there in Antioch, is very responsive to God. That's why they're called little messiahs um, by the community um, because they lived their Christianity so clearly and openly. And so when Paul says, not from men, that is, I didn't get my authority from them, not through man, um, that is, it wasn't passed down to me, um, but rather it is from Jesus Christ. So we have we have here Jesus Christ and the Father specifically stated back in Acts, we have the Holy Spirit involved. So we have the triune God involved in the calling of men in the ministry. And that... Cannot be breached. We cannot um, usurp that kind of authority. And once we start getting into that realm of usurping that and saying, we decide who should and shouldn't be a pastor um, based upon calling. We're not talking about qualifications. We're talking about calling. We'll decide if you're called or not. Um, We run into dangerous territory. Um, And we begin to become perverting the work of God. And so Paul right away says, I'm an apostle. I don't depend upon men. I don't depend upon a man. I'm not doing this because of a council. I'm not doing this because of an individual. Um, I'm doing this because Christ has called me to this and I have to obey. Now, do I appreciate and desire the church to recognize that? Absolutely. Paul's commitment to the local church is obvious. um, But it's not absolutely necessary. It is valuable. But a man of God who is called by God to ministry must minister. He must. How many of the prophets of old were called to ministry and waited to be approved by a body? No one, none of them. Most of them were disapproved by their message because people didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to repent. They wanted to hunt those guys down and kill them. And so this is the tenor that he is setting for this letter right away. I want you to understand, I'm coming to you not based on human authority, not because I have rabbi so-and-so. And in our day and age, we would say, well, pastor said this, or this author said that. And, and I think it's really interesting when we take new believers and hand them some other book than the Bible and say that will really help their Christian life. That's a dangerous thing to do unless that book happens to be filled with Scripture and just guides them through the Scriptures. But our job, uh, the, the primary task is to get them into God's Word. And to and that's a primary task of our church, is to get you into God's Word. Um, there's the authority. And so I always preface when I hand somebody a book and say, Now you know this isn't the Bible. <laughs> I don't agree with everything in here. But that doesn't even matter. Because I am not the de- the determiner of truth. What is truth is, first of all, who is truth? Is Jesus Christ and then God's word. We, we rely upon as the declarer of truth. And so we compare everything against God's word. Not about so-and-so. And, and when I was in my hermeneutics class in seminary, and even in college, Bible college, um, we're always told that in the midst of good sermons, you always have quotes from other Christian leaders. And um, being an ornery student that I was, I kind of said, does that include Paul? Is he a good Christian leader to quote? Does that include John, Peter, Jesus? Are those good Christian leaders to quote? Um, In other words, I should be well-read and be able to give powerful quotes from the likes of You know, you can know the favorite authors out there, Max Lucado or whatever. And you know what the problem with that is? Is that I can't, as soon as I do that, I'm directing you to a non-authoritative place to find truth. And I'm going to tell you something, Max Lucado can't say anything better than the Bible. Neither can Kirk Wessling. Our best efforts are to direct you into God's Word and maybe to add some substance of, of application to it, some, some substance of, of the cultural milieu of that day and translate it into the culture of our day, um, but we dare not mistake claim to something equivalent to what the Scriptures say. And that's exactly what the people of Galatia were dealing with. People that were coming in saying, yeah, you heard that, but that wasn't the whole story. We want to add to it. There's more. You need, it, believing in Jesus isn't enough by itself. Is that all you heard? Is that what that Paul guy told you? Well, Rabbi so-and-so back in Jerusalem, James the elder back in Jerusalem, I mean, they can base it off of, I have the authority of the Jerusalem council, I'm here to tell you. And... Um, There's no power there. Um, You are confronted now with a choice. And Paul is going to say from the beginning, I don't recognize those authorities above that of Jesus Christ. And so the Bible becomes our foundation. We have Jesus Christ is the authority that we depend upon. And when we quote other people, let's be very careful um, to recognize that if I ever do quote other people or if I ever do recommend another book to you, um, it is always with a grain of salt. Because quite frankly, many of those men, I don't agree with a lot of their teaching, including some pretty strong guys, historically. And so um, I'm careful And we need to be careful that we compare everything we read to Scripture. And the tendency is, well, this sounds really good to me. It's inspiring. How many of you hear that? It's inspiring. And then on Facebook, it's plastered over a really nice picture. And that makes it doubly inspiring. And then sometimes they have this wonderful background music while they scroll the quote. And that just tears your heart out, doesn't it? Now it must be true. They have graphics and everything. Music, graphics, and this quote from somebody who must be a great man because his quote is being scrolled with graphics and music on Facebook. See how foolish we become. And so when the Galatians are called foolish people who are just off on this and believe everything they hear, based upon the authority of men or other criteria, Paul says, let's get back to the real authority. The real authority is Jesus Christ, and God the Father, and the resurrection. That's the power. The power of the Christian life is not well-animated and orchestrated graphic design. The power of the Christian life is the spirit within us, the spirit of God, working through the word of God, his sword, in a surrendered people of God. The power of the resurrection is what we are driven by. And so immediately we are confronted with what our message entails. We have to distinguish and we have to navigate through this great milieu of teachers being heaped up on every side. We have to navigate through them and decide... Who are we listening to? And in the past, I have, in my, as a young pastor, I gave a lot of, of credence to some of these guys, and I regret it greatly to this day that I led my, young, my church as a young pastor into some of these alliances with teachers that weren't teaching the whole counsel of God and that were pretenders. And when you investigate further and further and further and you get past the hype and the and the graphics and the and the few quotes, you discover that they have perverted the gospel and it is something else than what the Bible really describes. One you say, Well, it's kind of example. Well, I, I was in the early, early, earliest years, like the first two years of the movement called Promise Keepers out of Colorado. I was involved in that very heavily when i was a pastor at charity baptist in Rio rancho and and i just basically told our men if you're not involved in this there's something wrong with you um but they started bringing out and i believe that they are almost single-handedly or at least heavily handedly responsible for some of the movement within our churches that elevates family above god the worship of family relationships and, uh, and some of their writing was horrific, what they are talking about. That is, in the action of being a, a father, a husband, a, a parent, that that is um, the greatest acts of, of, uh, uh, of um, spirituality uh, and worship. And we find uh, this elevation of family above anything. And born out of that was really a movement against the church and against God's word. And against portions of Scripture said, "You better love me more than you love father, mother, brother, sister, child. You better lo- if you don't love me more than these, you're not worthy of me." And so I regretted it down the road. But by then, many of our GRBC churches were just fully enveloped in that, and then it mushroomed and went into other cities all over the nation. And our churches were just were just sucked into it, but by then, because I was in the earliest stages and one of the pastors in the early two, three years, first three years, um, I could see the direction, and then I started reading the books there and I was like, "Oh my, this I can't be a part of." Later on, down the road came the movement that came out of Chicago and, and then out of out of california and in these movements of the mega church the the church growth seeker services and again we had a lot of churches and pastors and our fellows just gravitate to that and embrace it um including my pastor in my church back in ohio and 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 you just how can you do that look at the message they're saying they're saying that you have to Don't use the cross at all because it's offensive. Don't use this word because it's offensive. Don't call things sin because it's offensive. Don't offend anyone was the the message of that movement. Eliminate everything from your worship and church that would be offensive to your community so they can come in and feel comfortable. Well, then they're going to leave comfortable and they're going to spend eternity in hell uncomfortable because you kept them comfortable in their sin. And so even to this day we are prone to give too much credence to the movements of men and we are prone to ignore the historical power of God that he intends for the church to rely upon. And so we don't need marketing, we need prayer. We don't need, um, you know, so-and-so's evangelism course. We need to get out there and live it and stay speak it and share our testimony wherever we are. Um, We just need to go to God's Word and spend more time in it. And this is going to be the problem in Galatia. In this group of churches. This is not written to one church, but a group of churches. And they are um, in trouble. They're in danger. They're in danger of losing what they started out with That was so precious. They're going to go from freedom to slavery. They're going to go from faith to the law. They're going to go from the spirit to flesh. They're going to go from God's authority to man's. And that, in Paul's mind, was a horrific idea. And he wants to set it out right away. I am Paul, not because of men, but because of God. And everything I've done, I've done... By his power and to his glory. And these other men, I'm not going to vouch for them at all. And he's going to name some pretty serious players and he's going to call them on their sin. I mean, guys like Peter, James. He's going to call them out in this letter. He's going to name names. He's going to call them out in public. Not only in this letter, but he's going to refer to events that he called him out in front of the church and said, Wait a minute, this isn't consistent with our message. Don't you be, introduce this hypocritical perversity into our churches. And so we get it right away, verse 1. And verse 2, we find there that he's not alone. He is writing also on behalf of the brethren who are with me. And of course, Paul didn't travel alone, and among those brethren, because this is a very early book, would have been uh, Barnabas, Timothy, perhaps some others early on, and so we've got him with his entourage uh, that is traveling with them, called of God, and ministering, perhaps um, it, um Already we have Silas involved if this is after Paul and Barnabas have have uh, parted ways, um, but it is likely not. It's likely um, before that. Uh, but wherever it lands, we have his brethren with him. You know, Paul, just because he has, this is the balance point. i got five minutes to balance off what I just said. So I spent 30 minutes with the thing. Now I have to balance it in five. Um, the balance point is that that doesn't, give us carte blanche to be lone wolves and be unaccountable. Paul surrounded himself with men of God and he made himself accountable to the local church. He reported to Jerusalem. He reported to Antioch. Um, this is uh, who he was. He he didn't just go out there and just do this because he does it, because he's God's man. He has this calling but he, he humbly surrenders himself and submits himself to the local churches. He submits himself to the authorities there in Jerusalem when he arrives there late in his life. So even when he's been a, in the ministry for years and years, he's still humble and going in and recognizing that he is not out there um, and, and uh, on an island. He is to minister effectively uh, within the church, and so when he gives instructions to Timothy of how and Titus, you know, here's how to work with people in the church. Here's how to deal with false teachers. Um, don't be quarrelsome. Uh, be patient. Be gentle. Um, but also, don't tolerate this kind of people sneaking into the church. So he recognizes that he is not isolated in this calling. And so that's the balance point. We we have a lot of people that say, well, I have this calling from God, I'm going to do it, and and the devil with the rest of you, if you're not with me. That wasn't Paul's attitude at all. He recognized that while he has a calling of God is to minister within the context of the bride, the church. He didn't really have permission of God because he was called of God to just run roughshod, not shot, over, a little plug at our former APS superintendent, to run roughshod over the church. He didn't have that right. Even here, in a church that is going south quickly, um, he is using very direct and powerful language, he's still making some declarations that are very clear that he recognizes that, that, Ultimately, it's to God's glory and that he uh, wants only their best and, and he doesn't have to be the mouthpiece, but he knows he is. So it's not just Paul, the guy from God, it is Paul and the brethren with me. I'm not an island just because I carry this authority. I cannot just go off as uh, though the church didn't exist. And there are people out there doing this, and, and here's how I recognize them. I look them up, and uh, here's, the, here's the name of, they're no longer churches anymore, they're so-and-so ministries. That should really bug the tar out of you. that they put, And it's their name. So-and-so is their name. Jack Van Impey Ministries. Now, I love Jack Van Impey, and I grew up listening to him. Why does he have to name his ministries after himself? I don't know. It bugs me. And it gives some warning signs. That's not what Paul's all about. Paul isn't about, I'm going to abandon the church and I'm just going to do Paul ministries. No. It's with these brethren I minister. And that is nowhere more evident, I don't think, than in Jerusalem when Paul arrives and he just submits himself to the authority of the church of the town. And he goes to James and presents himself. And does he still have the authority of the apostle? Yes, but he's not going to use it um, and just ignore the fact that the church is filled with people who are also filled with the Holy Spirit, who have their own calling of God, who carry with them the capacity to understand God's word and for God to reveal himself to them. And so he's not going to just go it alone and, and if he has to override the church, to override the church. That's not who Paul is. And so this calling of God doesn't give you the right to do that. But rather it calls you to serve the church of God, recognizing her authority in God's plan to serve her as best you can by calling her to righteousness and to truth as effectively as you can Um, and sometimes that requires some blunt speech some honesty that might offend people's feelings but is not going to offend their salvation because it's going to deliver them from error and that's the balance we're going to try to strike all the way through this book as we study the contrast between man and God the law and faith slavery and freedom We're going to study that, the flesh and the spirit. We're going to see all these contrasts brought out in Galatians and uh, we're going to carefully look through them. Let's go in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and we thank you for a very uh, powerful introduction to this study uh, right here in the first verse that we are uh, have to confront it, that there is no uh, subtle development but that it is very much uh, thrown at us at the beginning so we can recognize that it's important and it's necessary to address it um, regularly and be careful to guard ourselves from following men who sound good and get us inspired in the world's way um, but are not leading us into your truth. And Lord, we pray for discernment in our study but also in our living that we might be cautious as we hear and Read and and uh, consider uh, the teachings of men, including those within our own church, that we might be careful as the Brians to com- to uh, compare it and to measure it against your scriptures, and that our allegiance might be singularly and clearly your word above all. In Christ Jesus' name, Amen.